We've been led in the first part of our worship by a ruling elder of our church, E.A. Andrews, Jr., who is also a special representative for the president of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I hope that you will avail yourself of the opportunity to speak with Andy about the interest of InterVarsity, which, in my opinion, is the most effective student evangelistic group in the whole country. Now, let me read to you the lesson in... Uh, the New Testament, we have been studying this, uh, we have been studying the Lord's Prayer. Last week we began the first in a series of sermons that deal with the Lord's Prayer, and we saw the uh, setting in the Gospel according to Luke. Luke has a rather abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer, only 38 words in the Gospel of Luke. Matthew sets it in a little different setting. Someone has suggested that Luke, of course, who was a Greek, may have been writing for Greeks. Matthew, of course, uh, writes for Jews. Uh, the Lord Jesus probably prayed this prayer on more than one occasion. And uh, he taught his disciples this prayer. The doxology, of course, is a later edition by the early church. I think it's interesting that in Matthew's setting, it comes in that portion of the Sermon on the Mount in which our Lord is teaching us about our relationship uh, to God. We relate to God through the giving of our gifts, as we'll be taking up an offering in a moment. We relate to God in our prayers, and then, of course, all of us feel our inadequacy and our sins, and so we sometimes fast. Jesus does not say, uh, if you give, or if you pray, or if you fast, do these things, but he takes it for granted that we do all three. He says, when you, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, do these things. Now listen to Matthew chapter 6, these words. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. By the way, that their reward in full is just like those big stamps that they stamp on your bill paid in full. That's what it means. That if what we're doing is being done to be seen of men, it's paid in full right there. Pop that dollar bill and lay it on top of the plate and you're paid in full. Right there, that's all you get advertisement. And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And when your Father who sees in, in secret will repay you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading from his word. If we truly pray that his name may be hallowed, that we may honor that name by being true representatives of our Lord Jesus Christ and of God our Father and of the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in us so that when others see us, they might see us as people who are marked out, who belong to God, and who live God-oriented lives. When we begin that way, we are extending his kingdom. We are allowing him to accomplish his will uh, through us. And we are building upon a rock. Even the word amen, uh, which is Hebrew, means rock. And it means that we have founded it upon a rock. Now back again to the beginning. In Luke's version, one of the disciples heard him praying in a certain place. And he heard him pray, Father. That word Father is used in the Old Testament about 14 times, I believe, and always in relationship of God to the nation of Israel. It's not used in a very personal way. Not in the shockingly intimate and personal way in which it's used here. Here Jesus has prayed Abba. In Aramaic, Abba and Emma are the words that an infant would use in saying Daddy or Mommy. And it was almost shockingly personal to the disciples that he should pray in this way. And yet that word is precisely the word that he uses all the way through the records of the gospel, all the way to the cross, until in that awful and dreadful moment of dereliction, he cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And every other occasion, when he prays, he uses Abba, which according, if you're up on German scholarship, Jeremias and Lohmeyer, whom the rest of you don't know anything about anyway, uh, have put their students to work trying to trace the Aramaic down, and uh, Abba, the closest to it, is just Daddy. I'll never forget being someplace where someone said Daddy in a prayer meeting, and I winced because I thought it was horribly irreverent. But... Uh, and still feel a little squeamish about it. But uh, uh, nonetheless, this is what Jesus prayed, a very intimate and a very personal way uh, of Father. Now, we can add all of that personal touch to it there. In thinking about prayer and in growing in prayer, I thought this past week, we get a, a lot of consideration to preparation that we make when we're going into the office of some big person to visit them. Maybe we're going there to ask for something or for a special type of interview, and so we want to be careful that we say the right thing 
that we're dressed just exactly right. Even when we're going to someone's house for dinner, we often try to think about what we're going to talk about when we're there so that we can talk in terms of their interest intelligently. And we do those things so that we make the best of our opportunity. But do we really give much attention to the matter of prayer? Do we read any books on prayer? Do we study about what it means to pray? And if we do not, why don't we? Let me tell you something funny. Those of you who have heard it, forgive me for repeating this, but this is the craziest experience, one of the crazier experiences of my life. Uh, years and years and years and years and years ago, I used to work for a congressman in Texas named Lyndon Johnson, who later became president of the United States when President Kennedy was assassinated. I was in Washington at a prayer meeting, at a prayer breakfast, uh, just about 60 days or less after President Kennedy had been assassinated. Of course, there was enormous security. The Secret Service had policemen on top of the hotel uh, with uh, rifles with telescopic sights. They had police all the way down the streets. Barricades were set up. People were screened carefully who came into that section of the Mayflower Hotel uh, where this prayer gathering was made. Everyone was told to stay in their seats because of security. Ten minutes before the president would arrive, no one was to get up, no one was to move, everyone was to stay where they were. Now, I had been invited to go up there uh, by a friend of mine, and I was staying in Leighton Ford's room. I didn't even have enough money to stay in a hotel <laughs> on my own, so I was staying with him in his room in the Madison Hotel. That's an expensive hotel. I couldn't have stayed there anyway. But uh, uh, my brother, I have a brother who has a problem with alcohol out in Texas, and he locates me in the most unusual hours and places that you can possibly imagine. Uh, he's my twin, and I love him very much, and he's been sober for about six months now, and we're working on it. Uh, but uh, he caught me in Washington when my wife couldn't have caught me. If someone had died in the Montreat Church, I don't think Dorothy could have even reached me. But he had the operator in our little old country town in Texas called every hotel in Washington until she finally found me. And he got me on the phone. And I thought, what in the world are you doing getting me on the phone? I knew why he, he is so persistent. He said, listen, he said, you're going to that prayer meeting tomorrow where the president is, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I want a picture of the president to hang up in my barber shop. And he said, I went down to the post office and I asked Mark Hodges, the postmaster, to give me a picture, and he said he wouldn't do it. And he said, I told him I'd get my brother to get me a picture of the president. He said, he's a smart aleck. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he was talking about the postmaster. And so uh, I said, uh, okay. He said to, to me this. Uh, he said, now look, you're a preacher, and you're not supposed to lie. You promise me that if you see the president, you'll get me a picture. And I said, Melvin, I won't get within a mile of the president. And he said, okay, I know all that, but if you see him, will you get me a picture? 
And I said, I'll tell you anything to get you off the phone. Uh, you know how it goes on and on with people like this. And uh, I said, okay, I promise you, if I see the president, I'll get you a picture. But I won't get anywhere near where the president is. And I was seated at table 1,350 up in the balcony far away, comfortably watching everything take place, looking down at all the dignitaries. And an usher came up and got me and said the president wanted to see me. Come down to the table. Oh, brother. I came down the stairs and across the thing. I was wondering if the Secret Service would shoot me when I was walking through. Uh, then I came up and the president got up and embraced me and uh, hugged me and told me he was very proud of me for being a preacher and I told him I was very proud of him for being a president. <laughs> and uh, and uh, then uh, uh, we talked for a little while and uh, all the newspaper people were wondering who in the world I was and I was so nervous I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, so when the thing was over, uh, people came running up asking who I was. Then I wandered around uh, just after the breakfast was over and went back to the Madison Hotel and went back up in the room. It was in Layton's room, remember? And uh, that little light that comes on and off indicating a message at the desk was blinking. And I thought, I wonder who's calling Layton. No one knows I'm here. And then I got bored and I didn't have anything to do, so I asked the operator uh, what the message was about. And she said, uh, uh, you Reverend Calvin Thielman? And I said, yes. She said, call the president immediately. I said, I don't know how to call the president. And uh, she gave me a number, 202-456-1414, call the White House. So I called the White House. And uh, I got one operator and another operator and another operator and another operator. And I did know his secretary, whose name was Juanita. And Juanita came on the phone and she said, where in the world have you been? We have called every place in Washington trying to find you. Hold on a minute. Then the president came on the phone. And he said, Calvin, where'd you go? And I said, sir. He said, where'd you go after the prayer meeting? I wanted you to ride back over here with me in my car. And I said, well, I sure am sorry I was in the wrong place. And uh, he said, would you like to come over here and visit a little while? And I said, yes, sir, but I don't know how to get in there. And he said, just get a taxi and go to Southwest Gate and tell him I sent for you. And so I got a, there was a maid in the room. She saw all this taking place, a colored maid. And I said, would you pray with me? And she said, yeah. And I told her the president wanted me. And I said, I'm not used to talking to the president. And I want to pray for enough sense to be able to say something appropriate when I go over there. So we prayed together, the colored maid and I. And then I went downstairs and got in the taxi and went to the southwest gate. And they were still stopping taxis right far off for fear that one of them would have a bomb in it. And they sent a Secret Service guy out and he got me and carried me around to the Rose Garden. And I went through that. And uh, then in a few minutes, why well, one he just said to go in and I went to the president's office and so we visited, and all I could think about was my brother. <laughs> and uh, what he had asked me to promise him. And I thought, oh, great day, what am I going to do? And um, so the president visited with me, and we, he asked me about my children, how old they were, and everything else. And he wanted to know about Montreat. And uh, we talked about old times together. And he was sitting back in his chair with his hands back like this, uh, trying to kind of bored, trying to think of something to say to me. And uh, then I said, Mr. President, I don't know how to ask you this, but I got a twin brother. He runs a barbershop. It's right across the street from the courthouse in Paris, Texas. He called me last night. He must have called every hotel in Washington. He got me and he made me promise him that if I saw you, I'd get a picture for him to hang up in his barbershop in Paris, Texas. 
he roared laughing. That was the first animation I've seen. He liked to have doubled up laughing. And he picked up a phone and he said, bring me a picture for Calvin Thielman's brother to hang up in his barbershop in Paris, Texas. <laughs> and he hung the phone back up. And uh, Pierre Salinger came in the room. He was still hanging around there then. And uh, uh, so he said, what's your brother's name? And wrote all that out. And I thought later on, now this has got to have a point to it. Uh, uh, <laughs> and the point is this. Here is this man who was one of the most I guess the most important man in the whole Western world. And he asked me if there was anything he could do for me and if I wanted anything. And all I could think of was a picture to hang up in my brother's barbershop. But I got it. <laughs> it, was, it was answered. Now, when we go into the presence of the Lord, and this is the whole point, we're coming into the presence of a king. John Newton has a great him, you are coming to a king, large petitions with you bring. We're coming into the presence of the, the king. We're coming into the presence of our Father in heaven. And we're coming into his presence to seek great and good things from him. There is a communion with God. There is a communion with God which asks for nothing. And yet it asks for everything. This is what George MacDonald says. He who seeks the Father more than anything he can give. He who seeks the Father more than anything he can give is likely to have what he asks, for he is not likely to ask amiss. Now that's important. If you're in that sort of relationship with the Father, then your love for him is so great and you sense his love for you so greatly that you already know that what's best is going to be given to you. You have it already. And so we can bring our petitions to him. He wants us to put first things first. That's why he told us to pray that his name might be honored, that the type of life that we live would be the life that would cause other people to bless his name. And we who are believers should be very careful in our use of the name of the Lord. Also, we're instructed that in our catechism. We're to pray for the coming of his kingdom. In our little catechism, we are asked what this petition means, and it says, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed. You see, there's another kingdom at work in this world, and that's the kingdom of the evil one. And we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced. That's why InterVarsity is sending out evangelists. That's why it's discipling. That's why it's sending out missionaries that it may be advanced by ourselves and that others may be brought into it and kept in it. That's important in the catechism. And that the kingdom of glory may be hastened, that God's rightful rule and reign over men may be established. And then we make that great prayer in the third petition, those first three have to do with our relationship to him. 
the hallowing of his name, the coming of his kingdom, the doing of his will. And that's so important for us to remember. Thy will be done. Now, thy will be done is often misunderstood when we study the Lord's Prayer. We think of the, you know, I see that thy will be done, you know where I see it most of the time? Carved on tombstones. Sadly enough, it, next to rest in peace, that's the most carved on thing you'll see on tombstone is thy will be done. We, it's a resignation thing. We think that the will of God is some terrible thing. And so we pray thy will be done. We're just resigned to it. It's so terrible. And that's not all of it by a long shot. We may have to go through some hard things, but the Lord's accomplishing something good in it. Ruth Graham has a little series of articles that appeared in Decision Magazine on prayer. And in one of them, she told the story of how she was driving home from Asheville with their youngest son, Ned, when he was very small. And he kept urging her to drive faster, go faster, mother, he insisted. But she said he was too young to read the road sign that said 45 miles an hour. And again, he said, pass him, mother. But he was too small to see that it was a school bus and that she couldn't pass the school bus. She had to stop there. And she said, I thought to myself, when God is at the wheel, we may request, but never insist. We're too young to read certain road signs and too small to see what lies ahead. And so we pray for his will to be done. That's why in the bulletin today I included those things which I wanted called to your attention about Jesus. You remember when he sat down weary and tired in John chapter 4, and that woman of Samaria came out and asked for a drink of water? And Jesus talked to her in a marvelous conversation that eventually led to her coming to the Messiah and going into the village and bringing out the whole village to meet Jesus. And his disciples came back and marveled that he didn't seem hungry or thirsty anymore. And they were so obtuse spiritually that they said, has someone brought him something to eat and drink? And do you know what Jesus said in John 4, 34? My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Are we really seeking God's will in that way? So much that doing his will is our meat and our drink, our sustenance. I seek not my own will, said Jesus, but the will of the Father which sent me. And then even in that dreadful moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, he was willing to say, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He sought always his Father's will. Our peace 
is found only in God's will. When we seek his will, then we can have his peace. And that's the thing which seems to me, as we study through this, we're going to come more and more into a knowledge of it, that he is accomplishing his purposes, accomplishing them through our lives. And we come asking for really big things when we seek those first three things, the hallowing of his name and the extending of his kingdom and the doing of his will. Now, if my prayer is not just empty chatter, that it means that I want to hallow his name by being the very best that I can be for him. Otherwise, it's vain repetition. If I really want his kingdom to come, it means that I will give my money to extend his kingdom, that I will pray and work and witness to extend his kingdom, that I will let his kingly reign rule over me so that when I've hurt someone else, I go back and say I'm sorry or I seek to make amends or to correct the wrongs that I've done so that they can see that he is reigning over my life, so that I seek to do his will, not mine, and I seek to do it now. This is very important, to surrender our will to him. Real discipleship demands all of us being yielded all the time to him. It means thy name be hallowed by me right now. Thy kingdom come right now. Whatever you brought me to church to learn this morning, help me put it into practice from now on. That thy will be done. That I submit myself to your lordship and to your reign in every single area of my life. And when I've come to that place, then I've come to the place where I'm walking with him in that intimate and close relationship that means that he is like a, a daddy to me in the sweetest, best sense of the word. Like as a father pitieth his children, said the psalmist, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And this is something that I want us to remember in closing, that if he's my daddy and I love him, I can come to him with everything, that I want to honor him in my life, and that I want others to see how much we love each other and how much we desire each other's benefit and each other's welfare in life. Are you willing to pray this prayer and really mean it? George H. Morrison was one of our greatest preachers in Scotland. He wanted to improve his spiritual life, and so he took this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and he decided that to keep his mind from wandering, he would go down on his knees and pray through it 
until he was successfully able to pray each word of it and mean it with all of his heart. And he said that he had to pray through it 11 times. After the 10th time, during the 11th time, he remembered that he had concentrated all the way through that prayer and had yielded himself to the Father's will. Let us bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessed prayer which our Savior taught us to pray. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who lived out what he prayed for and desires that we shall live it out too. Help us to see that it's basic, simple, profound truths are meant for us today. Those of us who are gathered here in Gaither Chapel in Montreat in 1980, help us to know that you care about us lovingly as a dear Father cares, and that we who have a loving relationship with thee should want nothing more or less or other than to do your will. Help us to know that you care about ordinary people little boys and girls, housewives and carpenters and truck drivers and business people and school teachers, and all of us, and help us to thank you for turning our eyes toward you and knowing that you love us and that when we build upon seeking to hallow your name and extend your kingdom and to do your will, we're building upon a rock. Help us, Lord, to build our lives upon that foundation of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be with us all now and forevermore.